name is Thomas, and I get to be on staff here at the church, and it's my joy to be able to open up the scriptures each and every week to see what God has said and how that transforms our lives today. And we're in a series through the book of Acts. Uh, we're looking at what the church is and what it means to belong to the church. And as we looked the last few weeks, we, we've noticed that the church is not simply a building, the place that people go and worship, but it is the people who gather and worship. The church is the people of God, called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's known as those who follow the ways of Christ. And the church is the most ethnically, racially, culturally diverse group of people living on the planet today. And we want to know how that happened. I mean, rich and poor, young and old, crossing genders, barrier lines. The church is the body of believers. And where'd that start? And how has it gotten to every corner, it seems, of the world that people worship the name of Jesus? And that's the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the beginning of the church, the people of God. In the last few weeks, we've looked at Christ who has been risen from the dead and for 40 days showing convincing proofs to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses that they would believe in the resurrection. And then he gives them the promise of the Father, that he's not leaving them alone, but that as promised in the Old Testament scriptures, God is going to put his spirit in the hearts, to change people's hearts, in individuals who believe in God, who follow Jesus Christ. And so we saw the outpouring of God's spirit last week at Pentecost. Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. That's the 50 days we've been looking at. And when the Spirit was poured out on the people, the, the apostles and the 120 that are gathered with them at this prayer meeting, crazy things are happening as we looked at last week. And you might want to just grab last week's message and take a look at it. And people are gathering around, thousands are gathering in these crowds going, what is up? What is happening? And they're hearing the mighty works of God preached in their own languages. And they're, they're kind of all from all over the world. Their local cultural dialects are being spoken and they all hear it from these Galileans who have just received the Spirit of God. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, is now going to get up and he's going to give the first sermon ever given. It's great. And we're going to look at this first sermon. And he's going to address this very issue. Who is this Jesus? Who's this Jesus that has just risen from the dead and is going to transform the world. And, and they're looking out in the future saying it's going to happen. And we as the church are looking back and saying, it happened. Who is this Jesus that in the rearview mirror of history, we can say transformed the world? Like our whole time system and calendars before Christ, after Christ. And someone says, well, that's actually before common era and after common era. Oh, what, de what determines common era? Oh, the birth of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is a historical reference point in which human history has changed. Who is he? And Peter's about to give this awesome message I want to walk through with you. Before we begin on the message itself of how Jesus has transformed things and can transform you, the question is, who's this Peter who's given the message? Because, Jesus, because Peter himself has, been, has experienced Jesus for several years. And Peter has experienced this transforming work. And Peter's going to know firsthand several of the things that those who hear this message are beginning to understand and hear. So remember who Peter is. 
Peter's about to stand up and, and confidently, boldly stand up and defend his association with Jesus and who Jesus is and is accomplished. 50 days prior to this, okay, 50 days. Okay, it's, it's, it's January 26th today. So we're talking a week and a half before Christmas, kind of 50 days from where we're living today. A week and a half before Christmas, do you remember where you were? What you were thinking about? Presents you had to buy, trying to wrap up the end of the year, books, whatever it was. A week and a half before Christmas in our life, 50 days prior, Peter was at Passover with Jesus. And this is the Peter that said, you're the Christ. I'll never deny you. I'll never leave you. And Jesus says, by tomorrow, tomorrow morning's daybreak, when the rooster crows, you're going to deny knowing me three times. Peter says, I would never do that. I'm going to the grave with you, Jesus. I would never reject you, Jesus. And then the night where Jesus is betrayed, he's brought on trial. And the disciples, they all scatter. They all scatter. Peter says, I'm going to follow closely and see what happens to Jesus. And he's on the inner courtyard of this trial. And he's an eyewitness of him being spit on, mocked, ridiculed, lies, being told about Jesus. He's sitting by the courtyard warming himself by a fire, watching what's happening to Jesus. And a young girl comes up to him and says, wait a minute, you were with Jesus. Like, I recognize you, you followed Jesus. And Peter says, I never, ever knew the man. One. Short time later, as Peter still remains in the courtyard, a young man comes up to him and says, no, 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 you're a Galilean. I've seen you with Jesus. I've seen you walking with Jesus. I've seen you around the miracles, the teachings of Jesus. You are one of his followers. And Peter says, never heard of him, too. And then just before daybreak, another man comes up to him and says, no, 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 we know who you are. You're one of his followers. And there Peter denies for the third time knowing Jesus. This whole interaction is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke chapter 22, and we're going to pick it up on that third denial, verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. His heart is destroyed. Imagine this. You've walked with Jesus for three years. You've seen what Jesus has done. You've said, I'll never deny you. Everyone is scattered. You've kind of run, but you're hanging on at the edge of the trial. You deny knowing him three times, ever being associated with him. And after the third time, you catch eyes with Jesus. You see the Jesus who's beaten, lying maybe on the ground. Everyone, the mob is against him. And he's looking at you in the eyes after you just said, I've never known him. That's pain. That's why Peter gets up from there because he has been cut to his core. He's been cut to his heart. And with this grief, he leaves weeping bitterly. Now, three days later, the, some of the, several of the women that have been following Jesus in his ministry, they go to the tomb to anoint his body. And three days later, they don't find him in the tomb. 
that the tomb is empty. He's been resurrected. And they're directed, go tell the disciples. Jesus tells, go tell the disciples, gather them, just as I told you would happen has happened. I have been resurrected. Tell them to go and meet me in Galilee. And so the ladies run, they go gather, and they gather Peter and say, Peter, he's been raised from the dead like we told you, like he promised would happen. And so Peter goes and meets Jesus. Now, what kind of Jesus does Peter meet? Does he mean to save it? says, okay, now it's time to get serious about this following, son. Okay, you, you blew it. And in your guilt, you got to really like own it now. Like you feel really bad. You feel that weight of guilt that you denied me. You said you wouldn't do it. Now are you going to do it again, Peter? Peter, are you going to do it again? No, you're not going to do it again. You're going to follow me. And, and in guilt, you're going to follow Jesus. Is that what happens? Not at all. If you, if you think that's Jesus, you got to see a, an awesome picture of Jesus. Here's the picture. Jesus seaside, eating fish with his disciples. And he asks Peter this. This is John chapter 21. You love me, Peter? Peter says, I, you know I love you, Lord. Okay, well then, then tend my lambs. Then he asks him a second time during breakfast. Peter, you, you love me, right? Like, Peter, you love me? He says, of course I love you, Lord. Okay, then, then feed my sheep. And the third time he says, Peter, do you love me? And John records for us at, at this third time that Peter is grieved. Why three times? Lord, I mean, like, you knew I denied you three times. You're going to ask me three times? Is this to, like, push on my guilt and make me super guilty so that I'll never do it again? No, not at all, Peter. This is so that I can remove the guilt from you, so that I can restore you, Peter, so that you actually won't operate from guilt. You'll operate from grace. And you'll recognize the love I have for you, Peter, to restore you and give you work to do. And so the third time he asks so that he can remove the grief and the guilt. And he says, I love you, Lord. He says, okay, then go feed my sheep. Go tend to my sheep, the flock. And this is one thing you have to reconcile is, if you don't believe in Christianity, you have to say, okay, how is it that these people like Peter, a week and a half before Christmas in our timeline, 50 days, are doubting, fearful, and abandoning Jesus? And a month and a half later, in courage and boldness of faith, are standing before the community that crucified Christ and saying, we're with him and we'll die with him. And you've got to know who this Jesus is. What happened to Peter? Well, he's going to tell you. And it's what can happen to you. Two things have happened since that moment. Resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Resurrection transforms everything. They've seen it with their eyes. Jesus has conquered the grave. And then they don't have to be confident in their own strength or skills, but God has given them that his abiding and dwelling presence, as we looked at last week, will live inside them. That that will be their strength, God himself in his people. This is what has changed. Resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit. And this is where Peter, filled with the Spirit, says, teaches the crowds about who Jesus is. So take, take a look. Who Jesus is. Acts chapter 2. The first sermon given is Peter's, a man who was denying, doubting, rejecting Jesus 50 days ago, is now the one telling you about the work of Jesus Christ in his own life and for the world. Peter says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So, okay, this, he's going to start this sermon, 
and the proofs that he's going to talk about is the mighty works, signs, and miracles of Jesus. Now, if we were to start there, many people in the room would go, miracles, mighty works, and signs of Jesus? Yeah, isn't that like made up? I mean, that was like fabricated over the years, right, to kind of beef up the story of Jesus. But Peter's using this as an effective tool to have them believe in Jesus. And they're eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. So if they're the ones that have seen the works of Jesus, seen the life of Jesus, they'd be really quick if Jesus never did these things to say, Peter, what are you talking about? We're the contemporaries. Remember, you can't fool us. I mean, maybe you'll fool someone in history, but we know he didn't do any of these things. That's not what Peter is doing here. Peter's using the actual signs, wonders, and miracles that they saw they were eyewitnesses to, it says here. You yourselves know that Jesus did these things. That you're, you know these proofs. And no one denies it. What's amazing is if you look at the historians that wrote during the days of Jesus about the life of Jesus, those who loved Jesus and didn't like Jesus, those who followed Jesus and those who didn't follow Jesus, they would all agree that Jesus did miracles, signs, and wonders. Isn't that amazing? No one writes it didn't happen. What they disagree about is how it's happening. Some would say it's happening because he's using magic. Others are saying that he is filled with a demon. And others are saying it's because he's God himself. But you can't fool the peoples of the day that lived with Jesus. I'd be like someone trying to talk about me in the, in, you know, with you guys saying, remember Thomas, when he was the president of the United States? And you're like, that's not a thing, man. Like that didn't happen. We were all there. But here, Peter's talking to the people that were there saying, you know the signs and wonders and miracles you saw? And they're like, yeah, uh-huh, yep. That no one denies? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Let me tell you what that was. That wasn't demon possession. That wasn't magic. That was the testament by God of who he was. Verse 23, this Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, what, what Peter does here, he kind of marries two mysteries. Is that Jesus Christ on the cross is not plan B. Like God had to come up with something to save us. It wasn't an accident. It was like Jesus was living a good life and man, it was just cut short. Can't believe that happened to him. No, this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is, this is attested to in several places in the New Testament. Peter in another epistle writes to us that this Christ, Jesus, was known before the foundations of the earth. That's 1 Peter 1. Ephesians 1, Peter, or, or Paul tells us that, that we were chosen in Christ. Our salvation was in Christ before the foundations of the earth were laid. Isaiah tells us, the prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, that it was God's will to crush him, to put him on the cross. So before God created the world and created you and created me, he knew what it would cost him. And he loved you enough to create you anyway. And so what, what he's saying is, this didn't happen on an accident. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, God had a plan and knew what his son would have to do. But that doesn't get you off the hook of human accountability. This is part of the mystery. And then he says, but you crucified him. By the hands of lawless men, this is the hands of the Roman soldiers. You gave him over to the Roman soldiers and these lawless men put Jesus to death. And so there's this mystery of God's foreordained plan to save us. And our human responsibility of it is our sin that put Jesus on the cross. We're accountable to it. And so he marries these two mysteries and how you resolve it, I don't know. You just say, God knows and I'm responsible. 
Verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Like he's been resurrected. We've all seen him for the last month plus with many convincing proofs that the grave could not hold him. Birth pangs, like the baby cannot stay inside the womb. Jesus could not stay inside the grave. He would have to be delivered. And then Peter does this thing where he goes back to the Old Testament to show the Jewish audience proofs that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one that God said he would send. F.F. Bruce, a British scholar, he gives this well-known, famous address at Oxford. This is December of 1942, in which he talks about the speeches throughout Acts, the speeches of Peter, the speeches of, of Stephen and Paul, and he kind of breaks down how these speeches work and what, what's going on in these speeches. One thing he points out is the speeches are directed towards the audience who are hearing them. And so when the Jews are being addressed, in order to show convincing proofs of who Jesus is, the Old Testament is referenced. Because they know their Old Testament. They love their Old Testament. They're looking for a Messiah from the Old Testament. Jesus has to satisfy all the promises of the Old Testament to be considered Messiah. But when, when speakers are addressing a Gentile crowd who's less familiar with the Old Testament, other convincing proofs of logic and reason, the created world and conscience, are given, like Paul gives. And so here, Peter, giving this sermon, this speech, to a Jewish audience is going to look back into what they know, what they're familiar with, and say, from here, as according to the scriptures, Jesus Christ has fulfilled them and is the Messiah. And one of the places that goes back to is the Psalms. These are Psalms written by the King David, like David and Goliath David wrote many of these Psalms. And Peter's going to say, these Psalms weren't written about David. These Psalms were Messianic Psalms, written about the offspring of David, someone who would come from the line of David, as we know Jesus did, a son of David. And these are spoken about what would happen to him. And so they quote here, Psalm 16, it says, for David saying concerning him, concerning this Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says, brothers. I love that he says brothers. It's not like you guys are, you didn't get it. Like, look at us. I mean, we were awesome. We got it. We were like the mighty 11. We never doubted. But you, no, he's like, brothers. Like, we've experienced this too. Brothers, let me tell you, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's talking about, look from the platform of where Peter's at in Jerusalem, he could just look about the hill, Mount Zion, where David's tomb was, be like, Erie Highlands, you've seen the big sign. We know that David died and he's buried and his bones are in the tomb right there, like right there. You can walk there. But so this can't be written about him that he'd never see corruption. This is written about something or someone else. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's this Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses. We've seen him. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's what's going on here. You're wondering what mighty works of God. This is what God is doing. 
For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, quoting another psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so here's David. He can't be Lord as he's speaking about in the Psalms. He has to speak of another Lord. He's speaking to my Lord. Who's David's Lord? Messiah, Christ. And that's this Jesus. This is what was spoken about through the Psalms about this Jesus that he is fulfilling. And this Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and never seen corruption. His soul wasn't abandoned to Hades and he's at the right hand of the Father, which is a place of authority. It's a position of authority that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are as a footstool under his feet. And then he says, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus that you thought was just a crazy man, that you thought that he was a blasphemer, this Jesus that you chanted, crucify, crucify, this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now remember, Christ is the Greek title of Messiah. It means the same thing. It's not like Jesus Christ, last name Christ. It's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the promised one. This Jesus is both Messiah, promised one of God, to bring salvation to the world, and he is Lord. Now, it may not be as explicit here, and we know from later on that Peter has more to say than it's recorded at this moment. But the work of Jesus Christ is a one-time event for all generations, for the forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews picks this up. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 10, this is the work of Jesus Christ. Verse, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11. And every, high, or every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being made to the image of him. So what, what we're saying is, in the work of Jesus Christ is a one-time event that priests would stand at the temple and they would offer animal sacrifices. And through the shedding of the animal's blood, sins were atoned for, covered but could never be taken away. He never take away guilt and shame. But Jesus Christ, in a one time, never needing to be repeated again for all generations, made a perfect sacrifice in his own blood so that people in 2020 who live in Erie, Frederick, Firestone, Louisville, Superior, Broomfield, Thornton, who hope in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, would forgive their sins too for all time and all generations for men and women young and old across every track the work of christ is once for all he is the promised messiah and he is lord he is lord and, and lord means that he's master and that i'm servant that jesus calls the shots and i follow now this is this is rethinking what they thought about Jesus. 
He's Messiah, and he's the Lord of my life. I follow him. I give my allegiance to him. That's what it means to be Lord. Now, there's a guy named John Duncan. He lived in the 1800s. He's a Scottish minister. And he's the one that coined this term, the trilemma. Trilemma is there's three parts of a dilemma of what it is that people think about Jesus. And he referred to this as the trilemma, which was picked up by other authors over time. Watchman Nee, the Chinese uh, pastor and author, recorded this in another book called The Normal Christian Life, talking about the trilemma. And he talks about it as, as God being liar, lunatic, or Lord. And this was then popularized by another man named C.S. Lewis, who was a staunch atheist teaching at Oxford and Cambridge until his students challenged him to disprove Christianity. And in his historical studies of Christianity, he went from being a staunch atheist to accepting Jesus Christ. And, and in a radio broadcast, he made this probably famous of talking about what is the trilemma of Jesus? You have to give him an identity. You can't just say like, nice guy. You have to put him in a category, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Either you look at the words of Jesus saying, he professed to be God. He's saying that he can forgive sins. He's saying that he can raise people from the dead. Now, either he's a liar, meaning he knows he can't do that, but he's saying it anyway, or he's a lunatic, meaning he can't do it, but he thinks he can. You've got a crazy man on your hands, or he's Lord. There's not another category. You don't get to say good teacher. You're going to say, oh, reasonable, because you wouldn't, fire, you wouldn't follow someone who makes these claims as a liar, or you wouldn't follow someone and give your life to him if he's a crazy man like a lunatic. But Peter's saying, okay, he's Messiah and Lord. The things he said, he believed, and they were also truthful. Now, this goes to the sense of like, well, I, I still think he's just a nice guy. I mean, he, he was just a miracle worker. He cared for, he was compassionate. He loved the vulnerable and the outcast. Why can't we just leave Jesus there? Because the first century didn't leave him there. The eyewitnesses didn't leave him there. And as it's been said, I say to you, you don't crucify Mr. Rogers. You don't do that. So why have they put him to death? Because they know he's claiming to be God. And they say, liar, lunatic. Liar, lunatic. And Peter is saying, no, 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 my friend. Through his convincing works, proofs, resurrection, the pouring out of his spirit, God has demonstrated that he is both Messiah, the promise of the Old Testament, and, and, he is our Lord. He's our Lord. Hearing this, check out, check out the response. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They too were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're cut to the heart. There's, there's a, a Welsh king by the name of Llewellyn, or Llewellyn, I think his name, Llewellyn the Great. He lived in the 13th century. Pastor Tim Keller was telling the story of while he was visiting Wales, hearing the legend of Llewellyn. Llewellyn was a mighty warrior, but he had this great dog named Gellert. And Gellert was his faithful friend and protector of his family. But one day after hunting, Llewellyn came in, it's recorded that Llewellyn came in to his home. And there in the crib where his young child was lying was absent and vacant. He didn't know where his child had gone. 
And then Gellert, this faithful dog, came around the corner with blood in his mouth and on his mane. And Llewellyn, in rage, pulled out his sword and put his dog to death. And then, as his dog died, he heard his child cry under the crib, lying next to a slain dead wolf. And then his realization that he had killed the one that had protected his son. In his grief, legend says, he never smiled again. Cut to the heart. Now that's some emotion about a dog. A dog! Not Jesus! Who's been on the cross dying for me! And that's where they're coming to the realization. God sent him, his son, to die for me, to love me, to save me. And we killed him. What do we do? Peter knows the same grief eye to eye with Jesus. What do I do? Come to Jesus and he'll restore you. He'll forgive you of your sins and make you right and give you a gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's told, well, repent. Repent, in the, in the basic Greek definition is rethink. Rethink what you thought about Jesus. I thought he was just a wild, crazy man, but he's the Lord. He's our Savior. To repent means to rethink what you think about Jesus. That's what they do. And the New Testament picks up on that and builds on it. That repentance isn't just to rethink but to actually return. That repentance is to turn away from the way you were living and turn towards Christ and start living a new life. You can't repent and accept Jesus unless you leave something else. You have to repent, turn into Christ, leave lives of sin and embrace Christ. They say, okay, then repent and be baptized. Now baptism for, for these folks is very different than what we think about today. The baptism that they saw was the baptism of Gentiles in a public ceremony being baptized into the family of Judaism. That this Gentiles are proselytized that want to become Jews. It's a humbling experience. And they're like, well, we're Jews. We're already in the family of God. And he says, no, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so publicly declare your allegiance. Publicly declare your repentance. Publicly declare your life change to be with Christ. And these Jewish men who have, I've only seen Gentiles being baptized in the faith say, we have to be baptized again publicly in front of our friends and our family and our coworkers and our neighbors declaring, we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is Christ and Lord, Messiah and Lord, and he is our Lord. He calls the shots and we will follow. Now, are they supposed to sit in their own grief like, we killed Jesus? Perhaps in your heart, you're cut to the heart. We killed Jesus. Our sin put him there. No. Just like Jesus restored Peter, he wants to restore us. He wants to take your sin and your guilt and separate it as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 tells us. He's compassionate and gracious, not treating us as we deserve, wanting to forgive our sins and remove it as far as the east is from the west, that it would never touch each other again, ever. And so in repentance, he's a gift-giving God. He gives you two gifts. One, the forgiveness of your sins. 
east and west so that you'll never have to taste and feel the shame and guilt of it. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great gift. And then, that you would not be alone, he gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit, that God himself will take up residence and abide in us so that the faith that we live wouldn't be on our own strength, but be on the, the faith and the strength of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, as we looked at last week. He's a gift-giving God. In repentance, he gives you those two things, forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you, he tells people listening, for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So salvation is to everyone individually. For you and for your children and for generations. Meaning that this applies to every woman and man in this room. Every child and adult in this room. That Jesus Christ has died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And do you feel called by God to come? That's it. That's what it says right here. Far off to everyone, the Lord God calls to himself. Do you recognize, do you see God's love for you? His love for you and his call to you to come to him. If you do, then receive Jesus Christ. Repent, be baptized as the public declaring that you belong to Jesus and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. That's our response for anyone in the room who feels called to come to the love and forgiveness and salvation of Jesus Christ. For all those who feel far off, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Meaning, the sermon went on and Luke didn't record all of it for us. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So how did the church become the most culturally, racially, ethnically diverse group of people on the planet. That day, after the first sermon of who Jesus is, both Lord and Christ, 3,000 people say, I find allegiance with him, baptize me. And the Spirit believes it belongs in them. And as we looked at last week, all of these different Jews who have come in from the dysphoria of all these different countries have come to Jerusalem for Passover, have stayed for Pentecost, and now they're about to return home with the gospel message of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and with the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's a picture of the explosion of the church. Look at this last week. So in Jerusalem, this is where Pentecost, Passover's happened. This is where they've received the Spirit. This is where they've experienced the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. Now this has turned into a missions conference. And the gospel's about to go to Africa, and the Middle East, and up to Turkey, and over to Rome, and Greece, and over into Europe. And we're going to see, as we continue to journey through Acts, it's going to go from the Jewish family out to the Gentiles. It's going to go to Ethiopians. It's going to go to Samaritans, people who live on the other side of the track. Because God's heart is for all the nations, every tribe, tongue. It's for the world to know the saving work, the one event that doesn't have to be repeated again. For all generations, the salvation that's purchased for anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. The question is this, this is it. What do you do with Jesus? And I mean you personally. The Jesus Christ salvation is, is for a community of believers. But the question comes down to you as an individual. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or should you call him Lord? We're gonna have the worship team come back up and. And that's the question I want in your mind as they come and close out with one more song. 
to wrestle with that yourself. What do I say, who do I say Jesus is? And looking at the proofs of the day of the eyewitness accounts of this historical record of Jesus, seeing the transformed lives, people who've gone from doubting, discouraged, those who rejected Jesus now are giving these sermons of boldness and courage and are following Jesus to the cross. Is he Lord? And then for those who have received him as Lord, perhaps in days past, and he has just moved out of that place and you've put yourself as Lord of your life and you're calling the shots. This is the time when we just come back and say, Lord, you call the shots in my life. Lord, lead me in my marriage, lead me in my community, lead me in all these areas of life because I call you Lord, not only Savior, but Lord. You are the master and I am the servant. And so teach me, Lord, how to follow you. Let's continue to worship this morning.